Plug your art. Your art about plugs. Great. Yeah. You, you're doing a whole. You're doing. You you did your. Uh, you did your evolutionary biology piece, and then now you're going to Miami to do a hair plugs piece, all yeah, about yeah. hair plugs. Yeah, it's just going to be the evolution of man. You know that <laughs> diagram showing from monkeys to Homo habilis, and then straight into hair plugs. Yeah, yeah. What what would uh, what would habilis have looked like if he could have just got some some modern plug work done? Yeah, I wonder what their hair looked like back then. Probably you know, pretty good. Uh, yeah, they probably had like good, uh, good social grooming habits. Yeah, and they died at what, like forty years old? You know, those are the elder statesmen, I'm sure. Right. I yeah, mean, you know, and uh, those those numbers they got to be skewed on life expectancy back then. Because what are you like uh, losing? Like what? two-thirds of your offspring before they're like 10 months old that's true yeah that's how noah lived to be like what 700 yeah he was because all all the weak all the weak children die early but only the strongest survive and so you get these like 700 year olds and 850 year old methuselah or whatever like what a weird thing to make up in a religion (laughs) (laughs) yes we have eternal life but (laughs) <laughs> Back in the old days, you know, 4,500 years ago, <laughs> people used to live almost a thousand years. <laughs> yeah. Really just makes you wonder, like, they had no concept of counting, right? Yeah. However, women, women could only, were only of birthing age from like 12 to 15. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't like there wasn't like some 400 year old woman giving birth to to new babies like we just it was just a bunch of 700 year old men raping 12 year old girls but wasn't there <laughs> wasn't there one was that not abraham and his wife they were like old supposedly yeah yeah that's the whole uh they were very old and um sarah could not have children which is why she told him that he could um, have sex with like their uh, servant girl or whatever in order to have a baby, and so that's how he gets his first baby. But it's not like it's like a half blood, you know, because it's like a you, you know it's like an IVF baby. It's not even real. <clears throat> so God's like, no, you stupid motherfucker! I told you to have faith. I told you to have faith that I get your barren old ass wife pregnant. Not not tell her to give you permission to go fuck some teenager that was working in your tent and so then god just despite him is like look look i made your hundred years old wife pregnant and you know what i'm going to do next when he's like just prepubescent boy i'm going to tell you to go up on a mountain and murder him (laughs) a beautiful start to a religion (laughs) (laughs) oh it's all about faith though see it's just a lesson about faith (laughs) <laughs> how, how great and powerful it is What's <laughs> never ending To find a beginning That came before everything Like kids with Dakotas Discover the wonder In the ordinary
to um i wanted to mention we got a new sponsor this week okay uh we've had sponsors in the past right oh yeah we have i mean that's why you and i live in the luxury that we both do and drive all those fancy cars exxon mobile Mm -hmm. bp oh bp was huge for like we had like a a long running deal with them for like 13 months remember Mm -hmm. and then we were just sponsored by what cigarettes Mm -hmm. just just a generic cigarette. It, yeah, it was it's just it's just um just nicotine. We're just right. sponsored by nicotine. Yes. Not even big tobacco. Take it how you want it, patches, whatever. That was our slogan. <laughs> um but if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, I don't think they ran through that. So that was yeah. a Spotify exclusive deal. Yeah. Um but our new sponsor this week is uh, Eric Beal Art. Okay. Fancy one. Oh, Eric um, Bellart? Is this... Not Bellart. No, we're not selling uh, bongs and getting other people doxxed. Um, oh. We're just just normal art. Um, yeah, so I, I uh, got the opportunity, and I will now be showing my art at uh, Art Week Miami, which is huge. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's the largest art fair in the U.S., possibly North America. Um, and I say possibly just because I don't know if there's another one. I'm I don't know sure that Winnipeg Art Fair is huge. I hear Winnipeg's <laughs> Art Fair. Well, this one like uh coincides with. Art Basel, Miami, and Art Basel is a big art fair in Switzerland, and then they've got Miami and one other place that they have big ones. So this is like a big international deal. So I'm very excited. Uh, the other aspect of it, though, is that um, it would be great to sell some art beforehand so that I can fund my trip out there. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why what we're bringing this? you this new this what new is- sponsorship deal. Um, wait, wait a sec. Wait, wait a second. You you yes. want us to buy art you've made so that I'm you can go sell more of your art? If you have been so inclined, there are people who have listened to this that I will not name because they've not told me I can name them, but you can trust fellow listeners that have purchased art um, and I think have enjoyed it. I've heard from a few of them after the case. They enjoyed the purchasing um, process. They enjoyed the purchasing process. Very smooth. Uh, One-click checkout, except it's emailing me back and forth, and I'm you know, extremely anxious to make sure that you're comfortable with the purchase or whatever. And then uh, they so accidentally send you like a money order for $15,000, and they only sent, meant to send you a money order for $150, and they're like, can you cash that and send me back the difference? I'm so sorry. Right, right. <laughs> I try to be scam free. Um, but yeah, if you have been so inclined, I think because I'm making some pieces for this show, I'll be busier once I get into like September and stuff. And 
I don't know how things would go for the holiday season. So, you know, if there's if any of you that still listen to this celebrate Christmas still, which I don't know how that would happen, but you know, <laughs> possibly people ironic are fine Christmas. listening to yeah, blasphemous um heathens um disregard your faith, but that's not that's not who I am as an artist. That's who I am as a podcaster. Um but yeah, I just wanted to get that out there so I can uh you know, that would be nice. I'd appreciate it. When when is the uh art show? It is November 30th through December 4th. Oh, nice. So um, a, fun, a fun little 5-day weekend. Yeah, I mean, I have to get there kind of a few days before to like go and hang it cuz it's a the art fair like the area that we are, there's probably going to be uh, maybe 5,000 pieces, maybe more. So um, it's like a huge, uh, not conference area, but it's like a big area. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so it's it's going to be quite long. And I'm like in a group show with a few other artists that are, um, they live in America, but they're like from Japan. So... Is very strange being able to connect with them. Miho found the opportunity, so I'm eternally grateful. Are you gonna um, have to freshen up your speaking? Yeah, probably. I mean, I've been slacking on Duolingo just because I can get by with my in-laws. But uh, but hey, yeah. you've already you've already kind of learned it once, and uh, I hear that uh, the brain can uh, adapt experientially to a lot of things and just snap right back to things that it's learned before. Yeah, you know, transitioning into neuroplasticity, I feel like, you know, they say learning another language as a kid is better for you, like you, it sticks more. But mm-hmm. if you do put in the time, like in high school, I think you can learn a language. Like I feel like I learned enough Latin that the ability to learn Japanese was much easier because of that process. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I feel you, I feel the same way with with Latin. Like be, doing Latin first made um, Spanish and French way easier in high school. Um, when because I did Latin in like junior high and starting in like late elementary and stuff. Have you ever traveled to Europe, like where there's a Romance language speak spoken? No, I've never been to Europe. I've I've been to Central America and, and um I lived there for like half a summer in Honduras and that's like the most conversational Spanish I ever spoke. Uh when I was and that was when I was 13, but that was part of the prerequisite of me going on that trip with my grandparents like I had to really get my Spanish up to some kind of conversational level. Um the interesting th- thing about that was <laughs> it was just like um, you know, there was no Duolingo back then or anything right, like, yeah. that. <laughs> like that. The best so, was like flashcards. Yeah, it was like flashcards. So like uh, all I did was the thing that made me pick up the language even faster was going down to the jungle and hanging out with the boys at the orphanage and them just roasting my pronunciation because all I knew was just from like 
sight reading and how like I phonetically would pronounce a lot of these words from the flashcards, which is totally wrong in a lot of cases. (laughs) So they would make fun of me on the soccer field when we were playing by yelling the mispronunciations that I would do back at my face. They'd make fun of me on the basketball court when we played, make fun of me in the jungles when we'd be hacking, uh, hacking through the trails with machetes to keep the foot trails clear. But that sort of that, uh, that ribbing kind of locked it in even faster than I think I would have if I had like been with a teacher or something who was just going over like standard phrases you can use when you're on your trip abroad. Yeah. 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 The, the, when I took the Japanese course in Japan at that like language school, it was only taught in Japanese. So (laughs) it was, it was difficult to like figure out, but the, one of the teachers, there were like a handful that we would have throughout the week. And one of them had no time for any of the students. Like she, she would just, you would say something wrong or write the kanji wrong on the board. And she would just be like, no, and just erase it. And then like tell you to do it again. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. That's sort of the old, uh, the old uh, Catholic uh, way of trying to teach you algebra. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no. kind of strict. <laughs> Fucking wrong. Sit down. I can't. I can't believe that you would get up in front of the class and disappoint me like this. <laughs> I mean, it's one of those things that, like, that kind of stuff of just having the social pressure um, makes your brain go into overdrive. Because I remember, like. It was one of my first couple weeks there, and I joined the class after it had already started um, because my mother-in-law knew someone who worked at the school, and we were able to be like, can he just, he is in me, just do like, you know, six weeks of this. So I didn't even, I didn't finish with the class either. I like mm. left before the class was done. And... um the one of the first few weeks there we were going over like a fairly basic like we were learning some verbs or whatever and learning kind of the grammar a little bit which is like kind of funky in japanese but they were the thing was like medicine and it was like taking medicine so and it's just a pictogram and then you kind of have to write out the word or say it and the teacher was like um you know called on me and i've got no clue She's like, okay, what do you say here? And I said, I use the word take as in like, like to take something off of a desk or whatever. Um, And I said, so you take the medicine? And she's just like, no. (laughs) And like the whole class is like, how do you not know what? Because the class is also, there's like one other English speaker in the class. Everyone else is from China or Korea or Thailand or whatever. Um, So they're also confused, like, why would you say that you take it that way? Like, it's not, you know, the English for taking medicine is intuitive to me. And uh, yeah, in Japanese, you drink medicine, which makes a whole lot more sense. (laughs) Right, right. Especially if lots of medicines are are liquid form, you know, like amoxicillin and things like that. But yeah, I mean, it's also, I bet you, I, I don't know, but like in English... We just have like uh, 
these colloquial understandings where the words we use have lots of different meanings based upon the direct object they're referring to. Yeah, yeah. Does it put have like 25 definitions yeah, yeah, or something? Yeah. So, uh, but it's all uh, context clue based and based on our very rigid syntax that we have in English. Whereas yeah. I don't know if like instead of having like rigid syntax in Japanese, is it such that you just have a lot more specificity of vocabulary and then that is where the strict rules apply to the vocabulary side of things rather than like the order of operations of where you place words in a sentence? I don't know. It's a weird one because I feel like when I was first learning it, it was way more that I would run into a situation where like I didn't have the proper grammar and people didn't understand what I was trying to say. And now I don't think I have a whole, I probably have a better grasp than when I started, but it's not perfect by any means, but somehow fumbling through sentences like can make sense now. So it's kind of a weird, like maybe just, yeah, the words do make more sense. And then like the, I don't know, you stress so much on grammar when you're thinking about a language, Mm -hmm. but you know, whether you're saying like, I put the coffee in the cup versus I put the coffee to the cup. Like that's not, I think like Japanese is a language very few people learn. So it is kind of like French in that aspect that like it, you know, somebody who's bad at it is not going to be understood as easily as English speakers can understand people trying to speak English. But it is one of those things that eventually it gets to a point where you can just fumble around and it makes enough sense. Okay, so you have you have enough context clues. So are right. the other artists on this, are they uh, bilingual, or do you know if they're all just monolingual yeah. native speakers? No, they're, they're at least the two that I've spoken to on email are bilingual. I met with one on Zoom, um, and I saw on her uh, website, I think, or maybe it was her, like, CV that... Um, her parents are from like North and South Korea, but she was born in Yokohama, Japan. Interesting. Um, so she can also, she said like read Korean. Um, so I don't know, maybe she can speak some too. She was just using kind of shorthand, but yeah. And like how, how close is the script from Korean to Japanese? Is it the same as like a, a romantic language shared or is it a totally different alphabet? Totally different alphabet now. Um, years ago, the uh, Korean language used the same basic set of like Chinese characters mm-hmm. and so did Japanese. And then um, I don't know when Japanese changed over. It, I can't remember if it's like the 1600s or the 1800s or something, but they switched to like a phonetic alphabet. Um, but the thing with like the the characters being the same, the pronunciations changed a long time ago, and the um the characters changed meanings. And even in oh. Chinese, like if you see Chinese as like a, an option for a language. That's why they have like traditional or like simplified because mm-hmm. things have changed. But Korean is a very interesting language from the very little bit that I've learned about it, that the way that it's written, 
some of the like alphabetical kind of pronunciation phonetic alphabet characters are meant to represent what you do with your mouth like what you do with your tongue or teeth or whatever oh it's so it's it is a instruction manual on shaping your vowel sound <laughs> yeah I, and i don't know if it's every character I, it may just be a few that have still hung on to that or whatever mm-hmm. but um i found that like super interesting like i think every language should be that that would be way well, i mean easier. we got we got those holdovers like german does it with all of its uh annotated things over its vowels that cue you in on whether you're supposed to be using long or short vowel sounds. And Spanish does that too, Spanish and French, to let you know if you're supposed to, you know, make the E at the end of the word an A sound or a flat E sound. And Well, like, those are representative. The, the Korean that I'm talking about, and I may be totally wrong, but I believe I've read this before, like, the circle in a certain spot is showing you that's the location in your mouth you put your tongue. Oh wow! Like, so it's, it's like actually a pictogram like yeah, image. Yeah, <laughs> it's a hieroglyph. <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of a hieroglyph for your of mouth. speaking. From what I've read, which could be totally wrong, um, so that's why you come here for totally wrong stuff, right? Yeah, guesses <laughs> at languages. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Well. Like, uh, of, of speaking of totally wrong stuff, uh, neuroplasticity, um, we've talked tangentially about it on a lot of different episodes, the Summer Census series last year, the brain that we did back at the beginning of the podcast. Yeah. Um, but the thing that really made me feel kind of icky researching this episode was uh, how how easily this concept that has sort of really only been ha- has like a body of actual research to try to understand what's going on like that's only been going on for less than 50 years <laughs> and how that is when you try to research just the word neuroplasticity like everything that you get for the most part is a bunch of self-help guru bullshit. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. It was a lot of like how to improve your neuroplasticity by, you know, like laying in bed and holding your thumbs this way and it's like yeah, what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't need you don't need uh any type of medication that affects your uh, yes. brain chemistry for for your m- mental health disorders or or depression or things like that you just have to figure out a different positive way of thinking that'll rewire your brain because your brain is just this really moldable plastic thing that i guess we saw in one correlative study how it could be that uh you know you practice some things and uh, you reinforce some structures in the brain so why don't we just apply that to all of your problems and, yeah. and see if you can just 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 think your way out of your depression. Just just stop it. Just, you know, if you just wake up in the morning and just stop being depressed. If you do that enough times, you'll stop being depressed because your brain will, will outgrow its depression. Yeah, I think the other the other side of it too, like the beginning side, um at least as far as like the crash course guy was concerned, that neuroplasticity's kind of story begins with 
Franz Joseph Gall, the founder of phrenology. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, and then we so get that's... away. We get away from all the morphological head shape and brain size stuff, and now we're back to like, well, maybe there's a lot of morphological changes and differences yeah, yeah. in brain size. <laughs> yeah, it's um, obviously like the shape of your skull has no determining aspect of like your personality, but the concept that like things are organized in your brain in certain locations is like the aspect of neuroplasticity. Like there was this study that um, was this experiment that was conducted in 1793 uh, by like an Italian uh, anatomist that he like took some animals and trained one of them for years and then didn't train the other one. And then like, you know, killed them as you would call in the in the science world sacrifice them yeah yeah um, that's what they call they're they're commonly say sacrifice yeah you you typically just uh shorten it to sack which yeah we're gonna sack like them we're gonna sack them to the science god <laughs> yeah um and then he noticed that like part of the brain and the one that was trained was larger um and so there were people that were trying to figure out like this main aspect because all of this started coming about like when they started to realize, wait, no, like your brain is the center of self, not the heart. Yeah. Which I don't know if you've ever seen a heart, but it does not look very complex. <laughs> yeah. This it's the, uh, this is the, where the, the end of enlightenment philosophy period where we were talking all about, you know, like we could have all these great, you know, mind-melting conversations about origin of behavior and evil and creation and everything like that on purely philosophical terms because we had no real anatomical biological understanding of um, where a lot of this stuff came from so the philosophy side of things really was in the heyday of things it's like before psychology was in was even like considered a field like we're going to it's it's kind of uh the those philosophical debates that are like hung over from Descartes um when he starts cutting open cadavers that leads to this start starting to get to the oh wow we're going to find out exactly what everything is going on in here and you start to get brain stuff but you know, 1793, not widely accepted. <laughs> no. Not, not, yeah, a, it, not a widely accepted way of thinking. One, that you have a, your brain would be in charge and not some like, because, you know, you feel God in your chest. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the like 1793 thing, it was just like, nobody paid attention to it and then it was forgotten. Like, yeah. I think it was fairly recently that it was uncovered that these things even happened. Um, you know, much like the the Greeks created a computer, right? Right, like, right. Uh, totally lost knowledge. Um, but I don't know. Like, there's there's so much stuff going into the brain, and we already spoke about it. That it's like maybe just a quick recap that in your brain is there's these cells. There's a lot of different types of cells, but there's these main cells that we're going to focus on called neurons. Mm -hmm. And, uh, those are your neural cells and they are, they have like a main bulb 
which is where like the nucleus and a lot of the proteins and stuff are. Then they have one thick, long strand. It's called the axon. And then at the end of it, there's kind of another bulb, and but smaller. And that's where the synapse happens. The synapse is where that cell through electrical uh, signaling, which is just protons and, uh, I'm sorry, what are they? Um, Sodium and potassium are going in and out of the cell to carry an electrical charge Mm -hmm. down the end of it. The electron transport chain. (laughs) No, a little different. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Close. (laughs) Um, It gets down to that other bulb, and that causes little sacks of neurotransmitters to leave the cell that then touches another neuron on these things called dendrites, which are just like little hairs that stick out and have receptors on them. And then whenever that receptor gets touched by a neurotransmitter, it then, if it passes a certain threshold, sends an electrical signal down its own axon to communicate to another neuron cell. And that's like what your brain is. Yeah, that <laughs> is the trans. That is the transmission of information. That is basically all that it's doing. On yeah, <laughs> which which hurts my head to think about because it's it seems so simple and seems like it could just decide to stop working at any moment. <laughs> it's it's so but, simple, but now but when you layer it on top of itself like trillion times. Then you out of simplicity comes complexity, you know. Right, right, yeah. That's um, so. It's one of those things that it's it's a very simple system, but it's through that complex network of like a bunch of different neurons communicating to say the same neuron, and then that one communicating to a bunch of different ones. Like, there's this constant communication through this movement of potassium and sodium back and forth that just causes a slight change in the electricity of the cell going down this is how like all of our nerves work Mm -hmm. it's the same essential type of um the same essential type of like system like you have these are your nerve cells they're the same things as the ones that control your muscles essentially like and the axons, the long part that sends the signal down it, can be huge. Like you have cells in your spine at the bottom of your spine, near the bottom, that then communicate to muscles in your feet. And it's like one axon that goes all yeah. the way from your spine down to, you know, whatever the last muscle in your toe is. Yeah, it's not a uh it's it's not an old fashioned water bucket drill where you're just passing on one bucket of information like piece by piece all the way down. It is just like a fire hose that just goes straight down your leg. <laughs> right, <way>. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, which I think is very beautiful, the way that it all works out, and shows how, like, you know, a lot of people would look at this and think it would mean, like, look at this complexity from this simple this, system. It look must at this mean, design. Yeah, that there's some deity or something. I see it in realize how we easily evolve from simpler things like if you look at a starfish it has no brain it has a central neural ring and then those neural rings send out sticks of neurons to like the end of each leg Mm -hmm. um so that's why like 
you know, you can see the evolutionary steps to get to humans. It's not designed for us. It probably could have been designed way better. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. If yeah, if you start with the if you start with the first electrical system in a car and then you just decide like if if the evolution of car was all right, we put up the first computer in a car and it's going to have like tons of giant transistors and you're, the whole thing's covered in wires. But instead of ever improving on any one of those elements, we just like made the car like bigger and then just kept adding more wires to the system until they became like this big tangled yeah, yeah. mess of wires that made up the entire car. That that's the evolution. That's how evolution works. <laughs> right. <laughs> We're just a big bunch of tangled mess of electrical wires that if anyone had designed it would have done a much better job of laying this out. <laughs> yeah, the uh Yeah, I how many How many brain cells do we even have to? 86 billion neurons. Mm-hmm. Um <clears throat> so that's like an insanely large amount <laughs> that we have in our brain and the way that they communicate to each other it means that there's like how many trillions of like the number of connections is insane yeah because they're not I, one I, to one yeah each like each neuron has like seven thousand synaptic synaptic connections mm. to other neurons which means we have a total of like 0.15 quadrillion synapses and more than 150,000 kilometers of like nerve fibers. So <laughs> being in your brain, that's how much like in your cortex <laughs> that you have. Um, it's wild that all of this can then change. Like it's, it yeah. makes sense because you have so many options, but at the same time, you're like, doesn't it need to stay like this? If if I can function with that many connections, shouldn't they have to all stay the same? Uh, but no. No. And, well, and the, the, the interesting sort of dichotomy is that we have all of these systems in order to change, and they're going to be changed by stimuli, and a lot of this... Neuro, neuroplasticity is part of our subjective experience of the world and then how that affects the molding and uh, the layers of our brain and how many uh, how much gray matter gets wrinkled in on top of certain locations in our brain and how that all comes together but at the same time while this is an explanation of how subjective experience really affects the development of your brain, you also have to think of how amazing you can't think of your brain as a as a sum of your subjective experience. You almost have to think about it in the reverse way. Your brain is you sitting in a dark room where you can't feel temperature. And you can't see anything and you can't hear anything and you can't smell anything and you can't taste anything. And what does it have to do in order to know anything about the world if it can't do any of those things? And so how complex would the structure have to be? How many connections would you have to have in order to send 
to draw in impulses from all of your surroundings in order to create this subjective reality in, that's in your head because every all of your subjective reality is just a projected manifestation of a thing that your brain is making like all of the images that you see all of the things that you hear like everything is not um some separated objective reality when it comes to how your brain is processing that information it is trying to create a reality as best it can surmise from the information that it can take in so that's why having neuroplasticity is kind of important because if we were a rigid fixed system um then there would kind of be no adaptability to any type of situation and like the, the it would be an evolutionary dead end basically you'd have like a brain can only know it exists in these five ways and if any one of those ways is in any way hampered or messed up then basically that person is not a person like cuz they can't exist like any other person because the brain is a fixed system so sorry you don't get to be <laughs> you don't get to be one of us <laughs> that would be the yeah. end result yeah i found the the actual mechanism too for like changes like it it comes down to such simplicity in itself too with mm -hmm. that it makes it where like you know the change of humans is so um so simple like it it comes down to very few things that make these changes but then it it's like a cascading effect of change like yeah. for a personality or whatever or going from a rat brain to a human brain like um obviously we didn't come from rats but we had a common ancestor that had an even smaller brain than rats do um so the the way that it like these synapses physically change in a way that causes this neuroplasticity just the change of function and structure <clears throat> are you get like either um potentiation which means that there's an increase in response there's an increase in activity and this is uh literally an action driven process mm -hmm. that whenever you have one neuron that is sending it's called action potential whenever like the signal is going and then causing a bunch of neurotransmitters to be released um, the action potential is the electricity kind of flowing along the axon and whenever it's firing a lot and sending a bunch of signal that then causes the response to be much more because the responding cell the post synaptic neuron is receiving a bunch of messages so instead of needing to receive a bunch of messages and um like instead of needing to have the this big response be something that makes sense like you know you learn how to write with one hand well you want it to be where it's way simpler you don't need your brain overheating just so you can write your name mm -hmm. so it then decides like through just chemical messages we're going to make this simpler you don't have to signal so much the postsynaptic cell will then grow a bunch of dendrites to be longer and more complex so that there's way more locations for you to touch and the cell that is sending the signals 
um, can send a bunch more neurotransmitters, a bunch more chemicals with one signal instead of needing to send 10 signals. Um, and that's how you have just like a chemical change and a structural change at the synapse form from these things like these signals being sent. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also have a depression, which yeah. is a decrease in activity. And that's also action driven, which means if the one barely sends any signals, like, you know, you you barely remember your great grandmother's birthday or name or whatever. You don't um, remember because, how to write in cursive anymore. <laughs> yeah, something like that. You rarely use it. Yeah. Um, that means that your those synapses are going to kind of shrink. The dendrites are going to lessen. There's going to be what they call a pruning process where they cut off dendrites and sometimes that cell that would send the signal gets pruned itself and they just break up the cell like it just gets broken up with these little proteins that break up cells and stuff and then recycle all of the materials for something more useful Mm -hmm. um so that's how you like have these structural and chemical changes occur it's all action driven um And so that's why, like, you get the pseudoscience stuff of, like, just meditate, and then you get better at meditating, and that reduces your anxiety and stuff. It's like, yeah, that's possible. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But it's it's not the end-all, be-all to cause your brain to change. Well, and the the self-help stuff only wants to take the positive correlative behavioral information from studies and then apply that to everything rather than understanding that neuroplasticity is not just it's not a like just good positive thing like it is just a and it it is it is not biased <laughs> it it doesn't only want to be virtuous or only evil or something like that right. inside of you it is essentially an efficiency uh protocol and the other thing that happens though is that you can have plasticity that is detrimental um to to your well-being or towards your behavior or towards other things as well the you your your brain is capable of becoming better at playing the piano and it's also capable of becoming worse at playing the piano. <laughs> it's not like right. everything you do just adds another wrinkle of awesomeness to you. So it's just once I learned that, I know it forever. Everything's riding a bike. Like that's not the way that the plasticity works. And this, it becomes much more prevalent when you start to look at people who have um, disordered type of situations like like me with my visual impairments uh, and blindness or people who are deaf, um, people who've had brain injuries. One of the studies I was reading was about the the kittens in the 1990s where the dude uh, had a bunch of kittens. And I guess if you're a scientist, you can do this. But like, uh, you know, he had a control group of kittens and then he had like the a study group of kittens and the study group he uh, sewed um one of their eyes shut in the study group so he like sewed one of their eyelids closed and then you know you measured the brain activity and, and eventually you know over time as they grew up then you sacrificed them and looked at what happened 
And uh, the visual lobe of the brain that would have been developed for the eye that had been closed, it's not like it just didn't develop. It developed in a way that was starting to use the um, auditory function on that part of the braid to increase the visual spectrum. And then it was taking in all the, it was also processing the information from the opposite eye that was open now in the, uh, now in the, in the lobe for the closed eye. So it was basically grabbing from the other side of the brain, the information, the stimulate, the stimuli for for light sensitivity because it knew it needed this was part of the brain that we process that information in but this eye is just not is useless for some reason so we're going to grab that information from somewhere else and so you had the longer dendrite formation and things where it was reaching over crossing that boundary to grab that information from the other eye in order to develop itself um so th those are sort of examples, um, but the the much more interesting stuff because we've talked about like the sensory stuff. We've talked about the dude who had the railroad spike through his head. We've talked about like how uh, you are your brain and slight variations or changes into brain structure um, or to chemistry can greatly alter the person that you think you are whether it's your personality or the the things you desire or the uh level of anger that you have or the level of horniness you have or the level of passion like all of those things are very specific to uh morphology and uh the functionality of how things are working in those regions of the brain so one of the interesting ones was in rats um, and it was, they, there'd been a lot of sort of correlative studies that showed, oh, if you have like a more enriching, um, environment, then the rats that grow up in like a more enriching environment when they weigh the brains versus the ones that grew up in like just the tiny little lab cage, they can tell like the ones that have more of an enriching environment have much heavier brain. Um, so in order to try to really figure out, suss out what was going on, they expanded the study to where it was like not just an enriching environment, but a defined enriched environment, meaning that the rats that were in an enriched laboratory environment had a much larger cage that was not divide, subdivided by individuals. So it was all social interaction amongst those rats. Two, they had lots of um, instead of being fed on demand, they were fed based upon like puzzle based systems and feeders that would require them to like solve a thing and help their neighbor in order to get food and all of that type of stuff. And then also they had lots of uh, enriching elements such as different methods that they could build nests and, and little domiciles and things inside of this. basically they could exercise creativity lots of random junk that they could collect and then rearrange into stuff to make for themselves then the third cohort was totally wild like keeping track of rats that were in a wild environment not in the laboratory at all um 
And so that study showed one, obviously it, it kept true that the labs that the lab rats that were just standard lab rats did not have much in the way of gray matter, additional gray matter formation or stimulation into their brains. The ones that had the enriched environment definitely did have a higher gray matter content than the ones that were not. But the ones in the wild had two times the amount of, of brain distribution of gray matter than the ones that were even in the enriched environment cohort. So the idea still, there's still something there at the sort of evolutionary level within us as mem- as mammals as a, as that large group that when we're in the pressure of the wild where we are we have to be the ones that have to come up with the creative idea in order to hunt for our food and and create our own shelter and we're not offloading any of that sort of resources of our brain to caretakers in any way that is like the biggest driver for plasticity being in an enriched environment is good because that can help foster some plasticity that might have been neutralized by being inside a completely um an environment where all of your needs are met um but when that is now like uh, cast upon like humans and early education systems and things like that. The those types of findings are interesting in the idea that, yeah, you want to have like an enriching environment for young kids at learning in schools and things, but it's also even more important to put them in situations where they have to figure a lot of stuff out on their own rather than having them be given like rote memorization or even if it's like an enriching environment where you're having good like story time and everyone's sharing with each other and things there needs to be some stakes there has to be some stakes in order to really maximize this this cool tool that the brain has um, if you want to get the most out of it of course then you have to balance out how high do we want the stakes and then what are the trade-offs by making the stakes high? Because when you make the stakes high, then you get into the other evaluation that I want to talk about, which is the socioeconomic relationship between uh, neuroplasticity and your socioeconomic background and your and your place in society as a child and how that greatly um, sort of directs how well your your brain is going to develop versus your peers who might be higher on the socioeconomic scale and so you there has to be like this is all once again <laughs> more brain science comes back to like the <laughs> how how terrible like capitalism is <laughs> on this <laughs> yeah i mean the real quick on like the the lab rats versus the wild rats and stuff too the thing that your any brain, um, but especially in mammals, starts to develop whenever it works on neuroplasticity and causing these new connections to grow and and solidify and strengthen and everything, is it's like your brain starts to work in a way where it will reinforce good 
uh, signaling pathways, strong signaling pathways. But then through that, the brain is also able to adapt much better and realize, okay, well, here's a new challenge. It is being it is causing a lot of signals and needs a lot of response. So we'll strengthen that too. It's one of these things where the, it's again, a cascading effect that the brain needing to overcome these different situations to a certain level, if you're a wild rat means your brain is then going to be able to learn and figure out how to overcome other things and strengthen those pathways. Um, And this is, you know, it sounds very magical, uh, but if you just think of it on an evolutionary scale, of course that makes sense that your brain is going to, or a brain is going to need to learn and adapt to things in order to grow and increase the knowledge base. This works extremely well with mammals mm-hmm. um, just because there's so much of an advanced brain compared to like lizards, but we have the same brain parts. It's just, you know, a, a crocodile has it really well reinforced that the bird landing on its head is not going to be able to be eaten. So it just doesn't even worry about that. It's going to wait for needing to sneak up and attack on something so your brain learns these things and it learns how to learn yeah (laughs) over time and through these not not it does by you you know playing chess every day but it's not on the same scale as like writing or language or whatever but the socioeconomic stuff i didn't look at so lay it on me um well uh, the the i uh, the they had done quite a few studies in the in the 90s and early 2000s because going back like even when i was a young kid in the 80s and even like the um the anti-drug campaigns and stuff that were on the tv on psas in the 80s and stuff like the idea behind all that stuff was your brain is this thing that you were born with and all it's doing every day since you were born is getting worse and deteriorating and dying. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so if you do anything, like if you if you try to smoke one cigarette or or do weed one time, like you're gonna kill all these brain cells and you're never getting them back. Never, not never. You're gonna be forever stupid. <laughs> That's what yeah. everything was. That was like, and this is like, you know, less than. 40 years ago like that was even though there had already been like some studies in the 70s to definitively show that here we actually weighed these brains of these macaque monkeys and showed like how they're different and we could show point to exact areas where there's more folds here in this region of this monkey versus this monkey because of the different environments we put them in um like it hadn't made it to the mainstream anti-drug crowd yet um, but uh, there were more studies done in order to try to figure out this, especially from a psychological standpoint, because so, sort of this, uh, it was in our lifetime in the 90s where like school started really getting concerned with like having counselors and kids like mental health and stuff. It was just like, it was just kicking off, you know, so we needed yeah. to figure this stuff out. And there had been um, some studies done 
going back to like the 20s, just like on trying to understand why people from certain backgrounds or people who had parents that were educated at a certain level might have better outcomes than people whose parents were educated at a lower level. But even still, there was a whole lot of, well, God kind of made you this way. Or, um, well, if you're lower on the socioeconomic ladder, that's because of consequences of your own actions type of thing. And almost reverse correlation of, oh, because you're stupid is why you're on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum it, rather than thinking about it in the inverse way of being of saying, hmm, well, you weren't born you weren't born to be poor. You weren't born to have no resources like that wasn't like part of your genetic makeup on your birth. So how does it become that if you can take two kids, seemingly the same kid, but you just put them in different um, environments and different economic backgrounds that they can have such disparate outcomes. So it wasn't until like even in uh, uh, last year, uh, there was a Japanese study that finally did like a long longitudinal analysis of all this of all this information because you would like track kids and you'd be like, okay, these kids were poor and we tried to teach them piano and we had these rich kids and we tried to teach them piano and the rich kids picked it up faster than the poor kids. Um, so those are like the basic early studies. Um, but now with better functional imaging and um, fMRI and all, all of that uh, ability, they could do finally a long study where they took a cohort of kids from like five to 18 measured them, got all of their parents' information, measured them based upon their socioeconomic status, me measured the parents based upon their education status, um, measured based upon um, the longevity of life in the family, uh, basically put all of these different um, data points together for, for these children, and then started sort of comparing them against each other over time using using imaging to see what was happening in their brains. So they did one long study that lasted about two years where they got a bunch of baseline information. And then they came back and they looked at these kids again five years later. And then also got all of the analysis, like if their parents had suddenly like gotten a raise or their socioeconomic status had changed, like all of that was also factored in and then reversed, worked back through the statistics to, un to regress anything that might be noise in the data or anything like that. <clears throat> Basically, the results just show that it is greatly a very strong correlation between the types of brain development in children, especially when you start young, um from like five months to five years old, if that's the beginning of your socioeconomic hardship, um, because those kids experience stress and potential trauma at higher levels, and I'm not saying trauma in the way like they're being sexually abused or something like that. The Just the trauma from having you feel the stress of 
it being paycheck to paycheck at home, even if your parents never communicate that to you, even the kids that had no idea what socioeconomic status they were in because they thought we are everybody has the same money. You know, they had no idea what those differences were. Um, just having to deal with that stress in the home made them less capable of having a neuroplasticity that would help them develop their brains better. So the stress was an inhibitor on development. It's, and it's almost like you were talking about learning how to learn. When your brain has to be constantly um, flooded with these stress hormones, especially early on in development, you learn how to cope with the stress. So you have kids who who do score high on um, different types of things, whether it's because they have come up with a certain type of coping mechanism to deal with the stress so that they can they can get to their happy place fast or they can, you know, they don't melt down as quick. Like if things are taken away from them, like in the playroom, if sudden, you know, they do part of the test where they remove some of the resources and these kids deal with that a lot better than the kids who are in much higher socioeconomic statuses. But it is lear the learned behavior is learning how to compartmentalize and cope with stress, not learning how to do any of the development stuff that you learn how to do as a kid who doesn't have to deal with those types of things. And when they came back, the evidence stayed the same amongst the cohorts of kids when they came back five years later, like even once you removed like the regression and the noise for some of the kids who had gone up in socioeconomic status and you adjusted their development for that, they were still far behind their counterparts who were high, much higher on the socioeconomic ladder than they were. So this just goes to back to all of these are, are policy choices. They're all like, decisions that we have all made as a society as well we have to have people that are poor and we have to have people that are have less opportunity and are underdeveloped because that's the only way we can have people that are of have better opportunities and become more developed that's like the false logic that we all have and um i think if there's more evidence or more of these studies come out here in the next five years now that this is not, we're getting more at the actual causal relationships and we're not just pointing at correlative um, information. I, I wonder if there's going to be the, uh, if people who are poor but vote and operate as such that they are on the side of the well-to-do in the socioeconomic class, uh, and vote with their interests at heart rather than their own interests at heart. I wonder if they will have uh, the intention of mind to understand that, oh man, I'm kind of being screwed on this deal by by my experience. And that is not by virtue of my own circumstance and by consequences of my own actions. This is because I was born when I was born to who I was born and those were the only avenues that my brain had to develop in. It was stuck in this one one spot where it could could build and grow. 
Yeah, it's it's very interesting because this deals with like the critical period concept, the theory that's, you know, pretty well proven that there's like critical points of time in developments of brains that it is way more malleable um and way more influenced by by outside sort of nurture aspects that cause it to then get kind of stuck in that model like there's there was something crazy that um uh uh, what were they called it was there's like this uh primary auditory cortex model used in rats that studies their critical period plasticity so how important it is for them to their brain to learn something in order for it to then adapt and change and improve um, over time once they get older. And there's this frequency tuning that happens in like the earliest and shortest uh, critical period time for this auditory system between days 11 and 14 of life after birth for rats. You get five, um, you get, you get three days <laughs> to yeah. develop this. If you don't, sorry, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's strange because at this one, it's a frequency tuning aspect. It's where their brain learns and forms the connections for, okay, this frequency mean is this, and this frequency is this. It's just getting the base code down. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a more complex representation that is frequency modulation tuning, and that occurs between days 25 and 33. But if you don't have that frequency tuning from 11 to 14 days, like if they're put in a soundproof box or whatever, then they do not develop at 25 to 33 days, the ability to understand differences in frequency, like the changes. So they don't understand, you know, the, the verbal cues between rats or right. whatever. You can't, they and, can't decode the information. They might, they might be able to sense all the information, but they can't decode it. Yeah. Yeah. It would just be noise to them. Um, and that's why it's like, this is the critical evidence for optimal times of things like cochlear implants for, for kids. Yeah. Yeah. You got to get you it in there before those, they're like three years old. Yeah, it's it's like four years of old, four years old, and implantations performed after seven years old are unlikely to produce satisfactory results. Where there's there's like a you know hearing disability, and in that frame means a learning disability, as far as like being able to then understand the the noise that's coming in. Mm-hmm. So it's those critical periods are so important and for kids um like the the trauma that you're describing um they often refer to it as adverse childhood experiences um and those can include things like abuse and neglect and violence but they can also just be significant disruptions in life for the first 18 years of life in some cases um and studies have recently shown like a 2016 study showed that if somebody experienced one or more um, adverse childhood experiences, then they are way more likely to have, you know, PTSD, anxiety, depression, suicidal behavior, all of those, you know, things that we know trauma can cause. Mm-hmm. Um, 
can be caused by just one of those things. And there was like a further study on kids in war zones um, that they studied 3,000 war refugees. And this was like in 2004 and found that the greater the number of various types of traumatic events experienced, such as torture, fighting, shelling, abduction, uh, abuse, rape, or forced female circumcision, they're more likely to have PTSD, which, of course, makes sense. Yeah. But it is it reaches a level of 100% of individuals have PTSD if they experience 28 or more of those traumatic style events. Yeah. So this is on a much more intense scale, um, I would say, but that doesn't mean that it's any less significant um, to say that growing up under a system where you then have to you know, be afraid that you're not going to have enough money to get food or whatever, or you're constantly like, you know, like what is with, um, what is like the food benefits program? I guess it's different in each state, but like food stamps, yeah, yeah. essentially like you're not allowed to buy warm food with it. Like you can't yeah, get yeah. the warm like roasted chicken or the it's, rotisserie it's, chicken stuff. It's the, it's the government cheese product slices, and then they never melt when you when you make your grilled cheese with them. Yeah, it's <laughs> like that kind of stuff. As a child, like seeing other kids having you know a warm meal, <laughs> and then you literally are not allowed to have it is, I would say, an adverse childhood experience. So you compound those. And then you can see, obviously, the result is the brain um, deals with stress. It causes brain inflammation, which then causes things like, uh, like I believe, like brain-derived neurotrophic factor, mm-hmm. which is just the chemical, the protein that causes your brain to physically change shapes of those neurons, um, doesn't develop. It gets, like, blocked in a way. So... Your brain literally cannot change its function or structure if those things are dealt with in a certain way. So it's wild how it all ties together, again, back to such a simple system of communication. But it's those, like, as you say, policy decisions (laughs) that are driving a ton of these things that are literally impeding people's like impeding the human race's ability to have brains that develop to learn new things. Yeah. And, you know, the the overlying thing when I'm reading all this is I often, you know, I think I think about climate change and all the kids that are grow up where it's just become an becomes like a normative thing where You've got to migrate every couple of years or it becomes a normative thing where you just go through these in, intense weather cycles and you have to you might be displaced by a, you're going to be displaced by some kind of major storm event in your lifetime at least once. Like you're going to have like at least a few times probably in your early development where you either had no power at your house because of a storm event or whatever for weeks at a time. Um, like the, just, just the experience of going through the freeze a couple years ago here in Dallas, where it's just like no power for people for a week and, or in all of Texas. And 
you know, you're watching elderly people die <laughs> and um, you're all, all of a sudden you can't turn your stove on or anything to even boil water. So you're you you remember that crazy winter where all we did was eat snow for a few days because we ran out of water like like it's it's it can be like a. It can be an emboldening, emboldening type of life experience type of thing that you, you know, you'll tell your grandkids about when you get older. But even just going through those types of things as a kid, um, it can hamper your brain development in other areas as as you go along. And this is also true with like other things. You know, we talked about phantom limbs, and your your brain is 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 stuck in this total darkness and it has no idea what it was it has no idea what's going on outside of the skull it's tr- it's trying to figure it out um and so when it's getting mixed signals and it's expecting a certain type of response and it's not getting it it develops a way to make sense of that or work around it and not all the times are those things beneficial <laughs> right they're, they're it's not yeah. always making you like a a, the, a superhero it's not like it's not always blind people can now echolocate <laughs> some sometimes it's oh my god my i had my leg amputated and it always hurts even though it's not there um did you did you see the study of the phantom limb people who, in order to try to dissociate from their phantom limb syndrome, the part of this study told them to, like, they had a virtual image of what their phantom limb looked like on a screen, you know, like a virtual one, and it was, like, plugged uh-huh. into their stump. And uh, so they could think with their brain about how to move this virtual limb. Um, and it was when they realized that because it's the, the phantom limb was now just a part of their brain's imagination of trying to deal with this non-input data that it was getting anymore, uh, was when they could realize they could make the virtual limb contort in ways that a normal limb could not bend, like actually like bend the forearm in like a curly cue and stuff like that. And when they did that, they were all of a sudden it like detached to their brain from that sort of hang up of the phantom limb pain. Cause they're like, Oh wow. It's not, it's not even a real arm. Like once they saw that they could make a virtual arm, like bend into curly cue shapes, they're like unreal arm can't do that. And, and like their brain was like, oh, finally, someone gave me a piece of information that helped me understand what was going on so I can stop doing this freak out thing <laughs> because I'm not getting yeah. any signal from the arm. <laughs> That's awesome. No, I hadn't I hadn't read that one. I read the um, or I looked at a little bit the EMDR, like the the eye movement with like the like repetitive kind of rhythm that like gets pulsed into your brain at that Mm -hmm. area. Um, That one's wild. It's still like in development, but it's like using eye movements and rhythm tapping in your brain that essentially causes your brain to then think that it's like asleep. And by going into this like slow wave sleep process for your brain while you're awake, um, it disables the like fear receptors in your brain. Then if you're able to do something where like you go through 
an, a, a traumatic memory um, that your brain then snaps out of associating the fear with the memory and you can just logically think through it. And then after, you know, enough of those uh, processes or whatever, your brain just stops having the strong emotional response to mm. the trauma that occurred. Like there's such weird stuff that goes on, but it's, it's similar in the fact that like there's tricks that they're going to learn with the brain that can just kind of turn off parts of it or give it new information so that adverse things stop happening. Um, I'm sure they're going to be used like that. What's that TV show where like the guy goes to work, but like he, he doesn't know he's at work. Severance. Yeah. That's basically what severance is about is, uh, is this is part of this action that you can put an implant that can inhibit the sensory information to parts of your brain. So you have like, your your only awareness is, oh, I'm like uh, just a lab rat in this cage when I'm at the office, and I have no idea of my personal life or anything outside of this building. Yeah, that's a good show if you haven't watched it. Um, I haven't watched it yet. What is it on? It's on Apple Apple TV. Oh, see. Well, it, you don't, don't have, have to have an Apple TV. It's an app. Just like Amazon. I don't have an Apple or... TV. <laughs> it, you, you have can to go pay on for anything. it. <laughs> don't you have to pay for it? It's a subscription. Um, I, I bet you for that show service, like a lot of the stuff on Apple TV on their app is free. Comes with, Like even like the Friday night baseball package and all that stuff, all those games are free and all that stuff. You don't have to really? pay for it. Huh. Had no idea. Well, um, you should. You live out there in Cupertino. Yep, yep, that's me. You live out there in that weird-looking cylindrical circle place. Um, One other thing I wanted to say real quick is that the, like we were talking about, plasticity doesn't always mean improvement. It can mean, you know, um, removing circuits or whatever. You have kind of a fail-safe in your brain that's like this regulatory mechanism, and it was way complicated, so I will not bore you with the chemicals that are involved but essentially just know there's something there's chemicals and a process in your brain that keeps those connections that need to be formed from disconnecting um and that's why you know certain people like dealing with parkinson's or alzheimer's they just have those things disconnected and they've found that it's it need it seems to be that the brain itself is not disconnecting them per se it's not the connections of memories that are withering and degrading or whatever you have this feedback loop that keeps those things from withering and degrading and the feedback loop is what degrades and then that causes the chemicals to go in and separate out these things so like getting older people used to say like oh it's it's the plasticity of your brain that stops. You stop being able to learn or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, it's actually the inhibitory regulation of plasticity that is reduced in an aged brain or um, dealing with Parkinson's or Alzheimer's and stuff. And of course, these those have relation to pri- prions and stuff like that. But um, it's very interesting that it's like... Well, it kind of makes sense though. Like if as you age, it would make more sense that the types of things that degrade would be like 
internal would be like the smaller parts, the smaller internal elements of cells and chemical structures and things like that first, not like uh, the entire uh, structural system of the brain. Yeah. You know, because like a, part part of aging is like, oh, wow, I'm getting I'm starting to get messed up copies of the DNA and my cells can't replicate as good as robust yeah, as they yeah. used to. So it makes sense that like those sort of information, small scale stuff would be the thing that would fuck up first rather than like your skin falling off your face. Right. It's not it's not that the cells themselves are starting to die because they're old. It's that the proteins that keep them from being broken up are no longer being created efficiently or at the right amount or whatever. Um, and then that causes the cells to be broken up, not that the cell decides to break up or yeah. whatever. Um, so I found that very interesting. It's like a perspective shift, I suppose, on on aging and those sort of brain diseases. Yeah. Um, the last thing I had was on ketamine. Um, and why, like ketamine, the, the sort of the burgeoning field of ketamine treatments and ketamine clinics like in the last five years has been uh, related to uh, neuroplasticity as well because one of the things with the treatment of like anxiety and depression um, with antidepressants and other types of uh, neurochemical transmitter type of medication it's good like it definitely works Um, the problem is that it takes a while um, and some people who are, you know, suicidal don't need like a 75 day ramp up time with their SSRI before it like starts to take effect and you feel better about it. You know, you might need like something to get to get you better in the next couple of days or it could go pretty bad. Um, and what ketamine what they've discovered about ketamine is similar to what you were talking about. It basically extends those spikes all over the place so it can reach out in your brain um, for those transmitters so you can reach out and touch a lot more stuff in order to make new connections. So if you've got like something that is just a, a reoccurring loop that is messing up your mental, your brain chemistry and causing you to have low serotonin and putting you in a dep depressive spiral, the thing that ketamine does is it like hyperactively extends all of those to find new connection points to try to make a new loop that makes your serotonin regulated. Um, and this can happen in as little as one treatment. Um, so it's not like, uh, it's not a thing you do for the rest of your life. It's not like I'm now just a ketamine person. I got to go to the clinic every single day and get my drip. The whole idea of it is these are short duration long-lasting type of treatments, especially for people who are in more extreme bouts of depression, suicidal ideation, PTSD, um, those types of situations where a long sort of slow onset type of uh, drug to regulate their brain chemistry would not be the best path to take. But I'll also, if it turns out that ketamine is more beneficial on all scales, I can see why people would stop, would be like, well, we don't need to do Lexapro anymore. Just go do one week course of ketamine treatments and then continue like your talk therapy or whatever else you're doing beside it. And we'll measure your progress after that instead of just putting you on this for the next four years to see what happens. 
Yeah, I I think like the first one of those that I saw that was related to treatment was like the Vice video. So I definitely recommend people um, watch that one about like ketamine because there's a guy there that's just like an alcoholic and he starts going to the ketamine treatment. I believe after the first one, he's just like, I have no interest. It's not like it like makes him sick thinking about alcohol or something where yeah. it's like, you know, it's not some weird hypnosis effect. where they're like, Ooh, now yeah. I only think of like uh de- decomposing bodies. If I smell alcohol or something. Yeah. It's not something like that. It's very, um, pretty cool stuff. Um, just because it's, I mean, when you get to rewiring your brain it like, I mean, I could see how it could go bad, I suppose, but there's, there are places that have already figured it out how to do it correctly. Mm-hmm. Well, like when we were up in Chicago, like that, the place that's right next to the weed dispensary you go through is a ketamine clinic and it's like set up like a really nice dentist office type yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, where they have like little private rooms for everyone to go get their K hole in and only, you know, your treatment lasts about 30 minutes and then once it's over, you walk out. My friend has been doing it here in Dallas. Um, for similar, um, al- alcohol re- related reasons. And he says it's, a, it's amazing. Although the first time his dad did, his dad was in there with him to like, you know, help him go through the first trip. <laughs> and his dad was like, uh, so what do you want to talk about? And he's like, man, I don't know. Just, just anything. Just, uh, let's just talk about anything. I just kind of want to keep myself distracted. I don't want to feel like I'm freaking out or whatever. His dad, <laughs> his dad's like, well, uh, I just finished a documentary on World War II, The Battle of the Bulge. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, 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 no. That's not what I want to talk about. <laughs> no, I don't want to talk about exploding trees and people diving into potholes. I don't want to talk about... It's not, not the right topic for this chillax time, Dad. <laughs> yeah. I mean, did he did he slip into like the... K hole or whatever. Or oh is yeah, it just okay. And then they yeah, gave I mean, him like a much lower dose. Like he did it. I think he did five treatments, and then afterwards they gave him like a low dose. I don't know if it's a pill or if it's like a liquid dropper or something that he takes, but it's something that he can just take at home to to manage occasionally if he ever needs to. But it's much lower dose than whatever they give you at the clinic. Yeah, it's so interesting. As long as we don't all um, kill each other in the next few years, I suppose things will be interesting to figure out what, <laughs> well, what they learned from this. Well, stuff. The, the the I guess the big takeaway here though is if you have kids, uh, brain brain plasticity doesn't mean that you if you sit them behind a piano starting at the age of two, they're going to become some virtuoso pianist or composer or if you start making them play golf when they're two years old they're going to turn into tiger woods because every brain is just filled with unlimited potential if you just give it enough experiences that's not the way it works either (laughs) you still are capped by your by your genes and whatever you have like you're not there there is you know some people are just you know have a genetic abilities that are better than your genetic abilities but brain uh, plasticity does help you realize the 
the limits or where those caps are type of thing. You can, you can max out. I would say that, um, Tiger Woods definitely falls under the adverse childhood experiences category of having antisocial <laughs> behavior. Uh, so, I mean, you can, it's a trade off, I suppose, if you do have those genes. Well, that, that is, that is what it all comes down to. Like, um, you know, the, like Nikki has a real problem with like navigating around the city when she's driving and things. So she's, she's completely a slave to, um, her, her Apple maps, uh, location on her phone, even if it's just driving somewhere a few, uh, a few streets away. And it's, I think it's also part of this, um, brain plasticity, or I would be interested in a study that would show, cause there is the brain plasticity study on, study on like, uh, London cabbies, you know, back in the day who used to have like oh, yeah, have yeah. the whole thing memorized. But my, my bigger question is just from a navigation standpoint, like with the rats who had to be out in the wild, um, like we have a natural sort of, uh, evolutionarily obtained inclination towards navigation and direction and being able to find where we started, even if it was months ago, like we can all do that. We all have the ability to get those wrinkles in our brain if we have that experience. Um, but I wonder, we're like looking at the future where you got to think like less than 10% of the human population is going to be able to do that. And like our, uh, by the end of our lifetime, like, yeah, yeah. like it's a skill, it's like an evolutionary trait that we are going to unlearn from ourselves because we're going to offload that to other things. And then do we get some other sort of neuroplasticity benefit from it? Because we're now able to use that part of our lizard brain that was really tied up with navigation and spatial awareness. And we get to offload that and use it for some other sensory perception that we weren't before. So maybe that's a cool thing. Or maybe it's just a, maybe we're now, we can never become the the wild and free rats again. The best we could ever hope for is being like the rats that were in a, uh, in a stimulating environment and try not to be the lab rats that are just stuck in a cage in isolation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things that, Learning through evolution takes a really long process and thousands of generations. That's learning through evolution is what we call instincts. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's like, you know, birds have the instinct to, you know, care for their young or if they're um, cuckoo birds put their young eggs in a basket of other birds so that that bird raises it. Like those are instincts. Those are learned ingrained in genetics. Um, but that takes thousands of generations to do. So I think we would reach a point where it is just each individual person doesn't develop that skill. And then through random mutations, eventually after thousands of generations of humans, we probably wouldn't have that navigation sense. Um, But it is something that I think if you were to take, you know, in two or three human generations, if you just, had a bunch of people that decided to go live in the woods, those offspring would have the ability to learn the spatial awareness. Yeah, we yeah. just shortcut it. It's one of those things that technology is shortcutting so much that we then no longer develop that part of our brain. 
um, it's kind of like the opposite of like certain drugs like ketamine. It's like instead of shortcutting it to benefit us, we're shortcutting it to a detriment. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it'll happen. Don't worry. Don't you worry. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll all be beta male soy boys by then anyway who can't have offspring. So I'm, I'm fine with that future. It's the microplastics. <laughs> <laughs> that that they we need more microplasticity. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, plastic has to mean because it can be u- made into so many different things, right? Right, right. It's malleable. Okay. <laughs> but gotcha. but but it also is kind of a confusing term cuz you can also immediately think of like a very hard rigid plastic since so many things are made out of right, plastic right. now and you're like, "Oh, so it's just like it's it's a formed mold that's unchangeable." <laughs> It's right, it's a yeah. confusing term, and it is not even like a universally accepted term amongst like medical versus psychology versus scientists versus like, and just the fact that you can type in neuroplasticity and you get a bunch of self help guru bullshit shows that it's kind of a a, a term that has such a floating definition that everybody gets to use it, which means it kind of doesn't have a definition anymore. Um, but yeah. Yeah. In, in our sense, we're only talking about the scientific research element. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, all righty. Until next week. Great job, Eric. Bye.